Hello, Ernest. Hello. Hello, Ernest. How are you today? Doing good. We're expecting our our bonus guest, David. We'll see if this disrupts the space-time continuum to have a person not named Ernest on this podcast. I do know a couple of other Ernests, but I don't know any of them well enough to uh, engage in these conversations. But he was certainly, uh, David Gleason was also involved in writing at Apple in various modalities, so it's a good fit. Um, just to keep you up to speed, one of the reasons I'm talking to David now is, uh, well, you remember Iglet, the platform that we've discussed in the last couple of weeks. Uh, mm-hmm. Kind of in peril with that, I met a friend of mine who works uh, not necessarily for, but with a, uh, a church that's going through a transition as they're trying to figure out uh, kind of what model they want to adopt in this uh, new reality we find ourselves in. And so he and I were talking about, uh, so what the things he's interested in overlap with the stuff I'm doing with Igwit. So he and I started doing a research project together of just interviewing a bunch of people. And I sent out a invite and David answered. And so he and I started talking and I thought, huh, a lot of this overlaps with what you and I are talking about. In particular, uh, David Gleason wrote a uh, post, which I'll include in the show notes, about his experiences with racism and segregation, uh, both uh, during a brief period of time when he lived in the South and saw uh, you know, how the, the Black hired help lived in kind of fear of their lives and even showing kindness to them was dangerous to him. And then he uh, juxtaposed that with his experiences in Russia during the, uh, the, the area of the Soviet Union and his uh, seeing some of the violence and hatred that went on between people who were ethnically the same. They were both Russians, they were both white, probably the same religious background, but they were in very different classes, sort of an educated upper class, party member type, and then sort of a more working class uh, individual. And just seeing how uh, the similarities in terms of the violence and the hatred and the mutual disgust that they held each other in and how it was not the same, but it was similar to what he saw in sort of classic American racism in the South. And so that was the, and this was kind of the question that, you know, we've been discussing off and on is, you know, racism is bad and clearly a major evil, but it's become to the point where it's almost uh, too easy of an answer. Uh, because you know, even though I'm sure there is still traditional anti-Black, white supremacist racism in many parts of the country, it's not quite the same thing in, I would argue, most of the US now, in that it's more like there's a deep sense of prejudice, which has a strong racial component, but it's not exclusively racial. You know, there are Blacks who are, you know, entrepreneurial Republicans who, culture, you know, culturally fit in well with sort of more mainstream, you know, conservatives who otherwise have a sharp dislike of quote-unquote Black culture and things like that. And so this led us to Isabel, Isadore, Isabel, I can't remember her name. Uh, the, the book on caste that Oprah uh, was sending out about a month ago 
to a lot of thought leaders and it was driving a lot of national conversations, which we'll also include in the show notes. And uh, whether or not, we'll just ping David real quick to make sure he didn't, I didn't forget to send him the, the dial in. Uh, have you had a chance to look at any of those articles or discussions about CAF? I have seen a couple of uh, interviews that she gave about the book. Um, so, um, yeah, I haven't uh, read the articles, but I've seen the uh, okay. interviews. Okay, what was your impression of her? I haven't seen her live, so I don't know how she's going to talk. Uh, her book, the same vein. I forgot the, the names, but... Um, uh, yes, she's a black woman, and um, she well, uh, well educated and um, erudite, and um, she has um, uh, educated views about uh, racial and class uh, situations. So, yeah, I can't. Uh, if you have a review about her, but um, I think that she has a Can you hear me okay? You're coming across a little broken up. Are you able to hear me? Hello? Testing one, two, three. Testing one, two, three. Can you hear me? Yes, I can hear you now. Somehow you're okay. okay for a while. Yeah, I need to move the phone. I have a really minimal signal here. But um, so, yeah, I. I uh, you're I saying that Isabel to... was very articulate and thoughtful. Uh, yeah, and, 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 and I hate that I have to, that I said that because, you know, uh, how people um, uh, qualify people of color as articulate. I hate that, but mm. that's what I did. Uh, uh, you know, she's not a, a, she knows what she's talking about and she can convey it really well. And so I look forward to re actually reading the book. Um, I can, uh, I, it wasn't you, I was talking to somebody else about, um, and just like you were saying that the Russians, the Russian citizens, that even though they have the same ethnic back, ethnic background, and uh, uh, they still have, uh, they still find uh, caste or classes to uh, divide the, uh, labor. You know, and you see it in Japan. You know, which essentially, you know, an almost hegemonic uh, society. You know, everybody's the same. Uh, yeah, homogeneous. Uh, but you still have the, you know, the levels of bowing that you have to do. Excruciatingly status-driven, yeah. In fact, one could argue that the more homogeneous the society, the more important it is to have uh, the, the fewer, let's say, uh, intrinsic ways of dividing people up, the more necessity of having extrinsic uh, status symbols for dividing people up. And so it's really fascinating how, um, you know, we certainly can 
focus on as she did on the U.S., Germany, and India. But you know, we of course also have apartheid in South Africa. We have you know the the, the very rigid hierarchies or hierarchical systems of, of you know China and Japan, and of course you know all of Western Europe had the sort of the Nordic conquerors become an upper class. Uh, even if they don't get quite as extreme as they did in Germany. So anyway, it's um, interesting. The thing that struck me, and you know, maybe you, maybe this is a nuance that uh, I just missed in the summaries that I've seen. But what I would describe is that that her take on caste is a much more thoughtful and broader uh, description of what we previously classified as racism, right? The Southern slave system and the supremacy of, of white, uh, you know, that part is, uh, so it, it, it more precisely, I would say it's a, it's a uh, um, at this point, you know, since the 1960s, it's kind of a standard democratic argument against sort of white nativism, but a little bit more robust and contextualized and you know that there is this caste system that exists that for which uh blacks are structurally marginalized and so i buy that part of her argument the, the critique i have which i hinted at last week is that i think in america we actually have a dual caste system so one is the sort of nativist caste system that if you're a you know a white and if you have ancestors who've been in this country a long time, there's a certain hierarchy there. And I think there's also a um, implicit um, uh, wealth bias. It's not explicit, right? There's the sort of the sense that um, I mean partly because of the Republican uh history of being pro-business or maybe vice versa i'm not sure which there's a sense in which if you are if you have made money and if you have money especially if you've made money that you are more virtuous than those who have not and if people are poor that's primarily due to a lack of virtue and so there is a certain almost uh karmic um uh justice in that the poor are poor because they deserve to be poor that goes along with that vein of thinking. I mean, that might be somewhat overstating it, but I think I've definitely seen it and even felt it myself um, in some ways. You still with me? Yes, I'm okay. here. Yes, okay. yes, I'm here. Yeah, so the thing that I think is missing from this is that so it's kind of easy to see how the nativists, uh, you know, uh, I don't know what the word for white-loving, um, but the both I guess the sort of the classic white white supremacist narrative of caste uh, uh you know is a combination of race and wealth, and you know there's a very much a sense of insiders outsiders higher and lower status, et cetera, and you know I'll be honest, a lot of it is tied in with fundamentalist and evangelical Christianity, and they have a really hard time disentangling those threads. So I have to own that up, and I think it's a very sober and devastating critique she labels. The thing that is missing in my perspective 
is this alternate caste, which I would call the, uh, you know, I call that the cosmopolitan caste system, which is that it's primarily driven by a sense of education and um, to the extent it has a religion, it has this sort of weird pseudo-Marxism where uh, some people describe it as cultural Marxism, which doesn't feel quite right, but it's close, in the sense that um, like a, well, someone said, you know, the interesting irony is that a, a, uh, a teacher who has an advanced degree but is making like really small, someone who has a PhD and is making a small amount of money is in this caste system considered higher class and higher caste than say a mechanic who owns his own uh, garage. Because a mm. mechanic who owns his garage is a capitalist and you know, could be quite wealthy depending on the environment he's in. And in the, you know, if he's a, you know, Bubba the Redneck and goes to church, he could be a very high status individual in the nativist caste structure. Whereas, uh, you know, Dora, the Hispanic with a PhD in English literature who works for near minimum wage at the community college would be low class by the nativist perspective, but high class by the cosmopolitan perspective. <laughs> and, you know, one of the things that I find particularly disturbing is that, like, there's a deep professed love for the working class. And I think it's very sincere. But the strategies, like, you know, for example, on the left, the solution is, well, you know, yes, only the top get to go to Harvard and, you know, the top Ivy League schools. And yes, that gives them a huge advantage. But we just need to give more poor people better education. But the whole way that the system of education is set up is a zero-sum game. Right? There are only X many slots in Harvard, and that number hasn't changed much in the last hundred years. Uh, there are only so many Ivy League colleges. And there is no, and the whole concept of education, you know, is that it feels much more like we are trying to recruit people from different strata into our caste, which I think the cosmopolitans at least have some claim to that, but that's true of the nativists too. I mean, if you're a Hispanic entrepreneur and you make a big pile of money and you have the right sort of Christian values, you'll be accepted into the nativist club. I mean, I am to a large extent because I have uh, the right credentials, even though I'm not white. Um, and, you know, I have the right accent and the right uh, belief structure so I can move in those circles with a reasonable amount of status. I mean, there's probably some effects on the edge here and there that are problematic, but at least in California, they're negligible. Um, the, you know, for example, you know, be, having dark skin is uh, easier to overlook than being, say, pro-abortion, for example, or even pro-choice, you know, in those circles. And so there's all these different rules. And anyway, the point is, is that the, a couple points away, one is that the educational caste hierarchy of the cosmopolitans is every bit as oppressive, uh, even if it's for more pleasant. I would say that the, the, the cosmopolitan try to make it more pleasant for those on the lower levels. Whereas the nativists actually make it, I think, are happier for people to get out. 
uh, in terms of, you know, if you're a self-made entrepreneur and you work, way, you work your way out, the nativists tend to celebrate that. And they're more concerned actually about personal redemption, if you will. Um, and the cosmopolitans seem to be more concerned about representative redemption. That, you know, if this poor black kid gets really high SAT scores and gets into the school, that's a success. That's actually one of the weird things about cosmopolitanism is that, you know, it's funny, most uh, nativist stories I always hear sort of start with a, um, a, uh, uh, a conversion story, right? I hit rock bottom and realized uh, that I was messing up my life, so I turned to Jesus or, you know, got my act together and moved forward. Most liberal stories I hear, for whatever reason, and maybe this is the random sample I've gotten, start with a divorce or a family falling apart. You know, I had to leave my family in order to really find myself. And I'm not quite sure what that means. The other, the other really strange phenomenon I've noticed, uh, there's this guy, uh, Sate Baron Cohen, who's a satirist. He made these movies. And you know, he would go around, you know, kind of playing different characters and kind of messing with people's heads. And one of the things you noticed is that uh, conservatives don't get irony. They don't find it funny. And if someone's really trying to play them for irony, they don't pick up on it. So he makes a lot of fun of a lot of different conservatives in different contexts. Uh, John Stewart in The Daily Show, one of my favorite uh, television personalities, uh, they made a business out of this. And I think it still continues to some extent. What's funny, though, mm -hmm. is that liberals, is that conservatives don't get irony but liberals don't get sincerity. They have a really hard time believing that someone actually believes what they say. And even if it's kind of wrongheaded or, you know, idiotic or, you know, just plain mean, they assume, well, he's just saying that because he's trying to get votes or he's trying to get this or trying to get that. They have a hard time dealing people who actually just really sincerely believe these things. Uh, and so there's something in the way, uh, and you would've heard the study that, uh, if you expose people to offensive odors, their policies become more conservative. <laughs> I've never heard that, but that's Yeah, it, it's really. really fascinating, is that there is this, not necessarily fiscally conservative, but socially conservative, is that when we feel we're, in this, we're under threat, <laughs> or in the presence of something dangerous or disgusting, it's like your immune system gets activated, and that actually changes the way we think. It, it's really, you know, it, you know, and I mean, I haven't reviewed the papers myself. I can't say for sure how robust the theory is, but it, it fits. Is that we tend to more focus on, say, in versus out, whereas, say, the liberal focuses more on. The other thing about the liberal focus is that, uh, to me, what I find hilarious and tragic at the same time is that, I mean, they both do this to some extent, but you know the nativists tend to focus on either the founding fathers or historic Christianity, but the cosmopolitans tend to go back to the ancient Greeks and you know the Plato and Aristotle and this long philosophic tradition. And what's funny about that is that you know I've been reading, you know I haven't said I've read it much, but I've listened to readings of Aristotle and these guys and. You know, there's all this incredible, um, what we would tend to call racism, but the sense of like, you know, we are the civilized people and those uncultured people are the barbarians and it's our right to make them slaves. And it isn't necessarily a racial component, the way we think of it, but it's very much 
a sense of supremacy and elitism. I guess that's probably a better word. You know, racism is the hidden sin of the right, but elitism is the hidden sin of the left. And if you are more intellectually detached, therefore you are more rational, therefore you are more human, therefore you are wiser, therefore you are in a position to make decisions on behalf of other people. And you know, the, the trope that I always get tired of hearing about is people on the left saying, why do uh, the working class vote against their economic interests? And the, uh, you know, Isabel's answer as well, they are actually voting for their interests because it's in their interest to maintain the existing power structures. Um, and that's probably half true. But I think the other half of it is that it is not at all clear that, you know, the, I mean, that the, the liberal elite, as the conservatives would sell them, uh, there's a great line, I think we talked about this before, right? The, the, the right, tends to value abstract principles over the welfare of actual flesh and blood human beings. And the left tends to focus on the welfare of abstract hypothetical human beings over the welfare of real flesh and blood human beings. Right, because real flesh and blood human beings, they have a faith, they have a community, they have culture, they have tradition. And the left wants to reduce that down to purely economic interests. And you know, most people, most, I would say normal human beings regularly avoid maximizing their economic interests in order to promote the health of the group. I mean, parents sacrificing for their children, right? And so that, um, I'm not sure where I'm going with this, but that's kind of my critique and expansion of her discussion of caste. And I think the reason it's poignant for us is that we talk a lot about the importance of having pro-social games and positive sum games and creating status. And one of the things that I realized from reading, her, reading about her work, I should say, uh, is that the way that we convince ourselves that we are pro-social and meritocratic is by focusing within our caste. Mm -hmm. So clearly the best qualified people to have all these fancy jobs are people who have gone to top tier universities. And it's true that within the caste, those systems are really good for selecting the brightest and the most dedicated relative to everyone else. Uh, so there is a certain narrow meritocracy at work there, um, but it only works within sort of the standards of the caste. And the, uh, similarly, you know, when someone in your immediate community suffers, you feel a strong obligation to help them out as a peer because you understand them. But if someone from outside mm -hmm. your strata, in either direction really, uh, has a gaffe, um, it's much harder to feel compassion. And in fact, it's um, in fact dangerous to show compassion. As my friend David Gleason talked about when he showed compassion to their um, their, uh, one of their black workers who'd missed her bus and they drove her home, you know, she wasn't just worried for herself. She was actually terrified for them. Because this was in the 50s and 60s when the Ku Klux Klan, if they saw a white person helping a black person, uh, there would be hell to pay. And, you know, the, uh, you know, the, the outright lynching stuff on the right doesn't really have a direct analog on the left in the U.S., uh, but there is this thing called cancel culture I don't know if you've heard the phrase. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, but there, you know, there, and there is a, 
uh, you know, equally intolerant and religious uh, groupthink, where if you violate those norms or question them, uh, you get um, anathemized, I guess is the technical term, uh, declared unclean, unfit, rejected from the community. And so um, the thing that's uh, you know, poignant about this for me is that I've been focusing a lot on rebuilding families, because I believe that families are the most important unit of psychological and economic health in our society. And I still believe that is true, but the, the scary thought is that um, love of family is what gives us caste. Because we want to give our kids an advantage, and we never stop to ask an advantage over whom. And that is the, basically the basis of caste, is we want to make sure that even if we're not uh, entirely thrilled about those in higher caste above us, we're much more focused, perhaps by design, on making sure that our us and ours don't slip down to a lower cap. And we put enormous amounts of energy into maintaining our place within the caste hierarchy and rarely, if ever, stop and ask, do these actually represent my personal values or the highest ideals to which I aspire? And so we say, well, you know, the people on the outside, well, you should just adopt our values and work within our caste system and you'll do much better. And we never even think whether that's actually possible or whether we're setting people up for a false, a false hope. So that's more of a confession than a explanation, but that's kind of where I'm at on that. Any yeah. thoughts or reactions? Thoughts about your thoughts. Or we could, uh, again, sort of leave it here and you'll do your own reading and research and you can kind of reply next week. Okay, yeah. yeah. The other side of the... Or the other side of the... Okay, well, we'll leave it there. I'll see if we can figure out what happened to David. Mm -hmm. And uh, throw some links in the show notes. And we'll pick it up next Thursday. All right, Ernest. All right, thanks, Ernest. Keep your time. Bye, Ernest. See ya.